Well, good morning, everybody. It is. It's always a very exciting thing to be starting a new book of the Bible. It's a little hard to explain it. I mean, maybe you've got to be a preacher to understand, but it's a real thrill to come up to a new book of the Bible to say we're going to spend the next several months going through at least a section of the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 4, and then we'll make our way through the rest of the book later on. But we're going to begin with such an amazing and profound passage this morning, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. So let's begin like this. Since it's such an amazing deep text, I want to read the thing in its entirety, and then we'll just put our focus on it. We'll come back and take it apart piece by piece. So if you could stand and give reverence to the word of the Lord as I read our text for this morning, John chapter 1, beginning now at verse 1. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Father, we stand in awe of Your Word. We pray that now, as we put our focus upon it, verse by verse, that You'd speak to our hearts And you'd bring life and light unto us as we consider your word. Please do it among us now, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know a whole lot about classical music, but I understand in some pieces of classical music, there's something called the overture. And the overture is something at the beginning that just sort of sets the stage for the rest of the entire composition. Uh, You have the same idea with a a prelude in a literary work. Or or in the movie industry, they have the movie trailer, which is supposed to give you just sort of a preview of what's going to happen throughout the movie. There is a sense in which the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 speak to us and provide an overture, a prelude, a, a movie trailer for the entire book. He introduces us to a particular person who initially calls the word to us. He introduces us to another man named John the Baptist. He introduces us to concepts such as light and life and 
fellowship with God, all these things working together are going to be themes that work themselves out throughout the entire Gospel of John. But as we come together and take a look at these first several verses, 18 verses of the Gospel, I want you to think, and I just wish I could do something, I know it's impossible, but I wish I could almost wipe from your mind any prior knowledge. I wish that we could go back as if we were ancient people reading this from a scroll in the first century with their thinking, with their philosophy, with their mentality, because if we could somehow, it would blow our minds even more than it does reading it a couple thousand years later in a different cultural context. Let me kind of show you what I mean as we take this apart piece by piece, beginning now in the first two verses. The, the, the writer, uh, the John the Apostle, he begins in this very dramatic way by saying this. Check this out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, one thing I want you to notice in the first two verses is there's not a single mention of Jesus Christ directly in those verses. In the sense, those words aren't put there. If you were to read this for the first time, if you were an ancient reader of this scroll, you would not immediately know from verses 1 and 2 that he was speaking of Jesus. You would be introduced instead to a person whom he calls the Word. And he puts this person known as the Word in the context of eternity. Did you notice the first few words of the book? In the beginning. Does that sound familiar to anybody? How about going all the way back with a deliberate connection to Genesis 1-1? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Deliberately, John takes us back to Genesis 1-1, and he connects this being that he calls the word to eternity. Not necessarily eternity in the future, though that is to come, but no more so in eternity past, telling us that if you go back in your mind to the beginning and go back before the beginning, if it's ever possible to do that in your mind, before the beginning, the word was there. Then introducing us to this person who's eternal, because after all, he was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the word That single word that we translate word comes from an ancient Greek word, logos. And logos is a very rich concept in the ancient world. I don't have time to go on all the ancient Greek philosophers and the Jewish writers. Let me just connect it to you this way. In the Jewish mind, they had a rich concept of the word. They believed that God could be perfectly represented by his word. To say the word of God was oftentimes to say God himself. And then in the Greek world of Greek philosophy, the logos was supreme reason. The ordering factor of the universe. The Greek philosophers had worked this out from the very beginning. Thinking about how something gave order and organization and structure to this world. It didn't create itself. That which created the order and the structure and the reason in this world was the Logos. And here, the Apostle John, in this wonderful and powerful way, he speaks to both Jews, he speaks to Greeks, he draws on this one word, Logos, that they would immediately have a connection with. And he says, you guys have been thinking about and writing about and explaining about the Logos for hundreds of years. Let me tell you now who he is. I'll explain to you who the Logos is. By the way, I just kind of love that idea. That John took something that was familiar to those people in their ancient culture and he introduced Jesus to them using something familiar. 
don't you think that God loves to do the same thing here and now today? Don't you think that God loves to take uh, someone who's a computer programmer and explain to that person, Jesus is the ultimate programmer? Don't you think he loves to take somebody who's, I don't know, in the financial world and say that Jesus is the ultimate auditor of your accounts? You know, in whatever way a person lives or exists, there's a way that Jesus is real and that he can connect to you in the midst of your community. And that's what he was doing for these ancient people right here, saying that the Logos, in the beginning was the Logos. And now he tells us something about the Logos. Verse 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Friends, this is deep. I have the sense right now that all we can do is splash around ankle deep into some very, very deep waters that go out as big as an ocean. But let me say this. What he's trying to tell us here is, number one, that the logos, the word, is God. There's no, there's no two ways around that. He says, in the word was with God and the word was God. That's what it says right there. First of all, the word is God. Secondly, The word does not comprehend everything of deity. Now, again, I have to do a little bit of a spoiler that we're going to talk about in just a moment. This is Jesus Christ that we're speaking about. This is God the Son. He is the word. And John's going to make that very clear in just a few verses. But this is what I want you to consider. What he's telling us about Jesus is simply this. Number one, Jesus is God. There's no two ways about it. He's not junior God. He's not lieutenant grade God. He's not a one-star general God and God the Father is a five-star general God. It doesn't work like that way. Jesus is God, yet Jesus is not the Father. He's with God, God the Father. And this gets to us to the core of what we understand as being the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Son is known here in this text as the Word. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equally God, yet they are distinct in their persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct in their persons, yet they are equally God, with God the Holy Spirit added, making it one God in three persons. By the way, if I could just make that formulation and emphasize it, we believe in one God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God in three persons. That's the biblical understanding of the Trinity. And so this is how he expresses it to us. He is God, and at the same time, he is with God. And just to bring that emphasis of eternity, look at verse 2. He says, he was in the beginning with God. And if he needed to explain further his divine credentials, he goes on now in verse 3 to explain to us how we can know that the word was God and simply that he created everything. Look at it here. Verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay, check it out. First, in verse 3, he's telling us that the Word created everything. Everything. Matter of fact, he's so strong in stating this. Look at how, I don't know, you could say it any stronger. All things were made through him, and nothing, or excuse me, and without him, nothing was made that was made. That's a pretty categorical statement. Jesus is responsible, the Word is responsible for all of creation. And then he brings forth two specific areas of creation. Life and light. 
life as a principle is created by God. Light, both as a physical property and as a principle, is created by Jesus Christ himself. In him are life and light. This speaks of more than just their physical properties, but exactly of the principles that underline them. And friends, this is the awesome thing. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Whatever life there is in this world, it can be traced back to Jesus Christ somehow. Whatever light there is in this world, you can trace it back to Jesus. And it's a startling way to say it, but I'll say it just by implication. If a person was without Jesus, there is some sense that any person without Jesus is both in death and in darkness. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever seen death and darkness in our world today? Those are areas that Jesus is resisted. Where Jesus is and where Jesus reigns, there is life and there is light. And even though the darkness battles against it, notice what he says here in verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. In other words, the sun says it did not overcome it. The darkness came against the light, but it did not overcome or overwhelm it. The light cannot lose against the darkness, and the darkness is never going to overcome it. Now, shifting again in verse 6, he tells us about a man who spoke to us about the word. He's going to tell us in our first 18 verses something about John the Baptist. And I don't know if you're going to notice, I'm mostly going to skip over the lines in our text today where he speaks about John the Baptist. Because next week we're going to talk a lot about John the Baptist. But he's going to introduce him to us here in verse 6 where he says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. John the Baptist bore witness to the light. Why? Verse 7, so that all through him might believe. The work of John the Baptist was deliberately focused upon bringing people to faith in Jesus, the Messiah. That's what his plan was. That's what his strategy was, to draw attention to Jesus himself. And he wants to make it very plain in verse 8 that John the Baptist was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. You know, John the Baptist's work was remarkably wide. It was remarkably well-received. But John the Baptist wanted everybody to know I'm not the light. I'm not the Messiah. I am simply drawing people to their attention towards that light. Now, verse 11, you've got the life. You've got the word. You've got the light in the world. You've got a man proclaiming it. Then shouldn't everybody receive it? Shouldn't everybody accept it? Isn't it strange that in born within humanity, Most of us are inborn with a fear of death and with a fear of darkness. So shouldn't we all run to the life? Shouldn't we all run to the light? Yet nevertheless, look at the truth of it here in verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Friends, what's going on here? 
This light that God gave, it is in some way or another, it has touched every person. Whatever light there is of conscious or awareness or morality in a person somehow gets traced back to the light and life that God himself has instituted in this world and how he's spoken to the world through creation and conscience. It all comes back to that one way or another. Nevertheless, notice this, that when Jesus came to the very world that he created, when the Logos came from heaven to earth to the world that he created, what was the result? Verse 10 says, the world did not know him. It is strange. God came to the same world that he created, to creatures that were made in his very own image, and the world did not know him. We should scratch our heads at this. This is strange. This is bizarre. We're made in his image. We're attracted to life and light. And the embodiment of all these things came to our midst. And we found a way to reject him. We found a way, as the story is going to tell us at the end, to put him on a cross. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the next line in verse 11 is even worse, where he says simply this. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Friends, Greek experts which I am not a Greek expert. I just know how to read the guys who are Greek experts. But Greek experts say that a better way to translate that idea, he came to his own, more literally is, he came home. And his own home did not receive him. God had appointed a people from whom the Messiah came, the Jewish people. And when he came to the Jews of the first century, largely they rejected him. Oh, there were some many, many blessed exceptions. All the very first church, they were all came from a Jewish background and we're rejoicing in God for that. But nevertheless, the leaders, the religious institutions, they did not receive him. They rejected him. And we stand back and we say, is it all lost? Is everything that God wanted to do in and through the logos, the word, the light and the life? Where where does this go from here? Then we come to the very good news of verse 12 and 13. Let's look at that together. It says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verses 10 and 11 say he came to the world and the world didn't know him. He came to his own home and his own home didn't receive him, but not everybody rejected him. There were those who saw, there were those who received. And as a matter of fact, it tells us in verse 12, you can be one of them because it says, as many as received them to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You see those words up there in verse 12, as many, you can be one of the as many. Really? Isn't that an invitation given out to you that you can receive him? That you can receive Jesus in the sense of putting your faith in him. And that's how wide open the invitation is from Jesus Christ. He didn't say, I just want the smart ones. He didn't say, I just want the good looking ones. He didn't say, I just want the successful ones. He didn't say, I just want the failures. He says, as many. That's who he invites to come unto him and to receive him. Even if the whole world doesn't know him, even if his own home rejected him, you can receive him. He gives you the honor and the privilege of that choice. Friends, each and every individual has to choose whether or not they will receive Jesus Christ 
or conversely, reject him. I want you to know, because at the end of my message here this morning, I'm going to give an invitation for people to receive Jesus Christ. How could I not? How could I preach on this text and not give an invitation for people to receive Jesus Christ? You know, that can be you. Why go through your whole life rejecting him? Why go through your whole life putting him at an arm's length, instead gain the glorious privilege that he talks about here? Look at it there in verse 12. As many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You can be accounted in his family. Now, friends, there is a sense in which every human being is in the family of God. There's a sense in which that's true. He's created us all. But there is another sense, and perhaps a greater sense, used in the scriptures where we become his children of special place, of special privilege, we become that when we put our faith in him, when we receive him in faith. And when you do that, God works a transformation in you. It's a transformation that you could never create yourself. That's why he says in verse 13, did you see that? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God does not invite you to a self-help project. He doesn't invite you to a self-improvement program. He doesn't say, here's my great turnover a new leaf regime. No, God says, you come to me in faith. You receive Jesus and he will come and transform your life. He will do something in you that you could never do for yourself. Think of it in these terms. Um, Do you guys know what a watch is? Some people still wear them. Do you know what a watch is that you have to dial and it has springs and all the rest of it inside of it? You can imagine that even if you've never worn one actually on your wrist. Think of a person with a watch inside and they say, oh, the watch isn't working. What should I do? They take it to a watch shop and the guy at the watch shop says, oh man, I can fix this. This is easy. All we have to do is put a new face on the watch. So he puts a new face on it, maybe a couple new hands and that's it. And it still doesn't work. No, If you need to really fix that watch, you have to go in and replace the mechanics, the fundamental principles of it, not just the face. God is not into just transforming your face of your life, so to speak. He wants to go right in there and change the fundamental mechanics. And that's something that only he, the great watchmaker, if you want to say that, can do. He's the one who can work that transformation. So here we have this wonderful, amazing offer that he puts out to each and every one of us. And just sort of to build the the, the sense of wonder and goodness on that offer. Look at verse 14. In some ways, verse 14 is sort of the key verse for our whole section here. It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Hey, Greek philosophers, you've been talking about the word for centuries. You know what? The word came to earth in a human form and walked among us. Uh, Hey, Jewish philosophers, you've been talking about God, the word and exalting him from his word. You've been doing it for centuries. Let me tell you something. God added flesh to his deity He added humanity to his deity and he came and he walked as a man among us. Verse 14 describes what we like to call in theological terms the incarnation. When Jesus Christ added humanity to his deity and came in human, in humanity I should say, to planet earth and walked among us. 
you know, the Greeks in some way had too low of a view of God. He says, no, you need to understand this is the word that became flesh. And in some ways, the Jewish people of that age, they had too high of a view of God. He says, no, it's the word, but he became flesh. Both aspects are important. And he came and he walked among us. This is what the word made flesh does. Now notice this specifically. In verse 14, he uses this phrase, and dwelt among us. That phrase dwelt or that word really has some sort of richness to it in the original language. It means something like this, to pitch your tent among people. In other words, he came and he pitched his tent with us. Now, some people think that that emphasizes the aspect of a temporary dwelling. In other words, Jesus did not come in his human form to dwell on this earth and to walk among us forever, but for 33 years, and then to take that human form and to ascend to heaven. Maybe that's the idea, but most people think, no, 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 it's another idea altogether. It's the same terminology, and in the context, it seems to indicate this, that the idea is of the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Do you know what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament? God told Israel in the book of Exodus to build a tabernacle. And that place was going to be the meeting place between God and man. That was going to be the place of sacrifice and where his glory dwelt among the people of Israel. And you could translate this phrase in verse 14, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus came to be that meeting place between God and man, the place where his glory would be exalted. Friends, God has come close to you in Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. God has come close to you in Jesus Christ. And the reason why I want to emphasize that so much is that you don't have to struggle to find him. He came to you. Many people think that their whole kind of journey or thing in life is, I got to find God. I got to find Jesus. I'll find him. I'll search. I'll go to the top of Mount Everest. I'll go to the bottom of Death Valley. I've got to find Jesus. You don't realize he's come close to you in the place of Jesus Christ. Receive it. Receive the Jesus who has come close to you. Friends, this is a word for those who have never received Jesus. And they need to realize that he's not far from you. You just come and behold Jesus and put your trust in him now. You put your trust in who he is. By the way, he's God, which he tells us here. You've got to receive him as God. Not just a great man, not just a, a great philosopher, not just a great teacher. You've got to receive him as God. But then also as the one who made sacrifice for your sins and paid that penalty. You come and receive him as such. He's right near you. You can do that. That is a message to the person who has never received Christ. But may I say it is also a message to the person who has walked with Jesus for some time yet feels that Jesus is very distant from them. It's not uncommon for people to go through a season or a struggle like that in their Christian life. Where they feel, listen... I believe, I go to church, sometimes I just mouth the songs, sometimes I sing them from my heart, but Jesus feels very far from me. Friends, can I just ask you, would you for a moment put away your feeling and look at what he says in his word? He has come near to you. The best of your ability, wipe away the doubt, wipe away your focus on the distance and instead put your focus on Jesus himself. Jesus himself, he's come near to you. Maybe subtly without you even knowing it, you found ways to depart from him when he draws near to you. 
There's a story, and it's probably just a story, just one of those preacher stories. Pretty good story, but who knows if it's really true. You know, about the guy who says, well, you know, um, I went to the Presbyterian church and I didn't find God. And then I went to the Methodist church and I didn't find God. And then I went to Calvary Chapel and I didn't find God there. And every place I've gone, and now I'm just trying whatever, I'm trying Eastern religion or something like that. You know, I can't find God. I've been looking for him everywhere. And then finally, God speaks to the guy and tells him what his real problem is. God speaks to the man and says, listen, here's the problem. You went to the Presbyterian church, and as soon as I started to get close to you, you left. And then you went to the Methodist church, and as soon as I started getting close to you there, you left. And then you went to Calvary Chapel, and as soon as I started getting close to you there, then you left. The problem isn't that I haven't drawn near to you. The problem is that you keep running away every time I get close. Friends, that could be you. That could be you. Can I just tell you? Forget running away. Instead, join with John, verse 14. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's conclude with just a look at these few verses at the end. Verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes before me is preferred before me, whom he comes after me, excuse me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Nobody has seen God the Father. No one has gone to heaven and seen God in his glory. It's more than we can take in. No, that's for our next phase of life. We are earthbound in that respect. But you know what God did? He sent his son to declare this to us. And that's what Jesus does. And when he declared it, look at how it was. Verse 17 tells us, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When the revelation of God in Jesus Christ comes to you and I, it is marked by grace. It is marked by truth. That's how you know you're really coming to Jesus. It's filled with grace. It's filled with truth. Now, maybe some of that truth will be some hard truth about where your life is and what you need to get right. Maybe some of that truth will be truth about telling you where you need to repent. But friends, it'll still be marked by grace and truth. And it's that Jesus says, I have declared the Father Come to me. Would you do that? Would you do it right now? Friends, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to pray right now. And then after I pray, I'm going to give an invitation for anybody here who wants to receive Jesus to get up out of their seat, to walk down the aisle and to come forward. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But first, let's prepare and ask that this declaration of who Jesus is, is real to our hearts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We're grateful for you. We're grateful for your word. Jesus, I don't know how it is sometimes that we get in the mentality that we have to search all around and find you when really you have drawn near to us and you have tabernacled among us. You have dwelt among us. Jesus, I pray that you would help people now this morning to see you in a new way. For everyone who needs to surrender their life to you and truly receive you, move upon them now to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.